Our theme in recent weeks has been unity in the local church or unity amongst the people of God in a local church. And the text is 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now we noted, if you've got your Bible there, you can see it. Verses 1 to 3 constitute the salutation of the letter. Then verses 4 through 9 constitute Paul's description of his prayer of thanksgiving for this church. All of that we would say is introductory. It's when we say that, we're not saying it's irrelevant to the purpose of the Spirit in the epistle. What we're saying is, as far as the, the, the letter itself goes, those things are introductory. They're ramping up for the, the main meat of the letter. Immediately out of that, verse 10, we, we would say right out of the gate, he addresses this subject of unity among the saints, I believe, at least in part because this issue is like an undercurrent that runs beneath all of the other issues in this church. Their lack of unity. Now, as we've seen, beneath their lack of unity was also their, their misunderstanding of who they were in Christ and what it meant to be a Christian. But this, this issue of unity, it's almost as if Paul can, can settle this from the start, out of the gate, if we can understand this, then all of the other things that I'm going to say will, will be more easily received. Uh, we can think of this very practically as a church. I've read 1 Corinthians. I know what's coming up. You've probably read 1 Corinthians. You know what's coming up. Some hard stuff to deal with. It's going to be very difficult if we don't first lay this groundwork of unity. Right? You see how, how that's very practical. He begins this way immediately. I would conclude that for Paul, based on just the, the way that this thing is structured, obtaining and maintaining unity for him was to be a, a, a primary and consistent labor of every church. What he's saying is right out of the gate, you have to understand that this is a priority before you get to, before you begin to even... Learn how to work with doctrinal and practical issues. There has to be this agreement that we're going to do it together. And we're going to have certain standards of belief that's going to carry us through all of those things. And so for us, we've been saying, obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Now, unity I've defined as the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. Doctrinal. There are things that we believe together. Broadly, there are things that you must believe to be a Christian. If you don't believe them, you're not a Christian. You're not inside the pale of Christianity. Now, inside of that broad circle, there's a smaller circle called Covenant Bible Church. And there are things that you must believe to be a part of this church. If you don't believe them, you can't be a member of the church here. You might can be a member of another church somewhere, but not this church. Doctrinal. But there's also practical harmony. Things we do. The way that we live and conduct our lives. 
broadly, as Christians, there are things that unanimously Christians agree. This is so clear from the Word of God. If you're a Christian, you don't do these things. You don't live this way. But even inside that circle, the small circle called Covenant Bible Church, there are things that we believe are practical, ways of carrying out daily life, that if you don't agree with those, you can't be a member of this church. You might can be a member of another church somewhere else, not this one. Now, that's not saying that you're not a Christian. That's just saying this church is not the place for you. Doctrinal and practical harmony. At the same time, where the Bible does allow for variations in those things, and somebody, two, three, seven people might hold to different variations, we have to understand that we hold them in humility. We don't take those differences and, and use them to lord ourselves over others. But that also assumes that there is an agreement amongst the church as to what those variations are. You might think that there's, room for, there's wiggle room with regard to a certain doctrine. Well, it, as a church, if we don't agree with that, you can think that all day long, but we'd have to say, you don't, you don't hold to this doctrine. You can't be a member here. Um, that, that assumes that the church has actually worked to uh, settle the matter on what are the objective non-negotiable doctrines and what are things that we can hold uh, open-handedly. What are those practical matters that are, that are um, not to be uh, questioned? There's no wiggle room here. And what are those issues where we say, well, there's a little room there for, for difference of interpretation or application. But even that assumes that we're working together as a church. Uh, there are a couple times in the Old Testament we read this phrase, every man did what was right in his own eyes. When you read that, just remember that wasn't good. That, that wasn't a description of how great the nation of Israel was doing. That was describing how poor they were doing. It was so bad amongst the people of God that individual men thought... I can do right based on my own belief and interpretation and practice. That, that's the, 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 the bottom that they got to. It was that bad, you see. Unity, the corporate pursuit of doctrinal and practical harmony. Now, after painting a picture of unity using that definition, two weeks ago we, we moved to begin taking this journey all over the Scripture to prove the priority of unity. And the reason that I'm doing that is sort of twofold. The, the first is it would be ridiculous for me to spend all of this time talking about unity if it wasn't actually a big deal in the Scripture. So I want you to see that it is a big deal. Um, but secondly, if you and I are going to be convinced that obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church, I want us to be convinced from the Word of God. I don't want to be convinced because... The pastor said so, or, or my goodness, we've heard this many sermons. If we don't all agree on this uh, doctrine of unity, he's just going to keep preaching on it and he's just going to beat us down until we, we finally submit. I don't, I don't want that either. I want you to see this is so prolific amongst the people of God in the Word of God that you will become convinced. I want you to see it in the Bible. So the first step in showing the priority of unity in the Scripture is taking note of the placement of this theme in various contexts. Answering the question, where do we find this theme mentioned? If I have to go 
I know this sounds strange if you spend much time in the Scriptures, but I think we understand the language of running off to some obscure text in some passage somewhere and finding a word that could possibly be translated this, and because it could possibly be translated that, then therefore all of these doctrines ensue, and then one of those doctrines, if applied in this area of life, might lead to this application. Well, if I have to do all of that, I think by the end of it you could say, "Mm, I'm just not buying it. But if I can go to places that are that they're not hidden, they're not obscure, they're actually uh, what we might consider very important high points of Scripture in a particular uh, text or passage, and I can say we climb up this mighty mountain of this passage and we get to the top, and what do we see? Unity. Way up there. I never would have thought it would be there. If I can show you that, that placement that adds weight to it. That's, that's kind of my thinking, my, my reasoning. So last time we were together, we looked at John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. We, we said that that prayer could actually be like us entering into the Holy of Holies and, and observing the, the Word of God incarnate as our high priest acting out uh, the, His priestly duty before His Father on our behalf. Nobody... Under the, under the old covenant, nobody ever got to see the high priest in the Holy of Holies. He was, he was in there, and once a year, nobody was with him. Nobody, ever, nobody knew what that looked like. Nobody could tell you. They could maybe guess, but nobody ever seen that. John 17, we actually get to peer inside the Holy of Holies and see the, the, our mediator, Praying for us. One of probably the most solemn portions in all of Scripture, if not the most solemn portion of Scripture in all of the Bible. And our Savior, the incarnate Word of God, poured out His holy human soul in prayer. And He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in Me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that, it may be per- that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. It's just astonishing to think that just before entering into Gethsemane, we're on his mind. He prays for us. The safety and the comfort of His church was on His heart. The unity of His people was on His tongue. And, and again, I, uh, I do believe that that is found primarily, primarily answered in the sending of His Holy Spirit to indwell each of us and drawing us together. How else could it be said that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one? So we concluded that if on such a solemn occasion... When all the cosmic powers of heaven and hell are raging around him, if on that occasion he was so burdened with the safety of his church that he would cry out for this concept of unity amongst the people of God, then surely we can agree the doctrine of unity is at least, that's the first text, at least worth considering. Hopefully, I gave enough there that you would say, okay, we'll hear another text. Give us, give us another one. So that's what I want to do. Today, I had intended to go through two passages uh, two weeks ago, but I, I spent most of the time there. So now we're going to look at the second passage, which is Acts chapter 2. So turn there with me. 
Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And I'll read the text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts or, or uh, sim- simplicity of heart, simpleness of heart, singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now I want to try to take my time um, and, and build the case for this text Typically, just a little insight into my mind and the way that my mind works. Typically, once I get here, I feel very rushed. But after last week, now I know that you all can sit through a sermon that's an hour and 20 minutes long. And so I feel like I have a little bit more leisure time. And one of my favorite preachers in the world actually preaches a, a consistent one hour and 10, 15 minutes. So um, I don't think we'll be here that long. <clears throat> but... I do want to take our time. So what I want to do is, just like we did with John 17, I want to think of this, this passage in its broadest context, which would, which would be, we call it the big picture, and then zoom in on it. Our, our, our view of Scripture is very often stunted by what I would call chapter and verse theology or you know the, the coffee cup verses, t-shirt verses. Not that that's bad or we, sh- we shouldn't memorize verses at a time or not that verses by themselves aren't helpful. But very often we, we, we just narrow our focus or our understanding of a verse based on just that verse all by itself. Um, the, the reason that I'm taking all of this time to open up 1 Corinthians 1.10 is because 1 Corinthians 1.10 actually comes in the context of a bigger book that we call the Bible. And all of the Bible it bears weight on every verse. And especially when it comes to a narrative passage like this, Acts chapter 2, we're reading a narrative text. We have to remember that the broadest narrative of Scripture is the whole thing. It started in Genesis 1 and it ends in Revelation 22, which technically we could say the narrative is still playing itself out in some sense. So the broadest narrative is all of Scripture and really all of history. So, of course then, we need to understand Acts 2 in light of all of Scripture and all of history, which coincidentally have the same beginning point which is the book of Genesis. Now, we won't go there to read. I'll just describe what I, I think we all know to be the case. We know that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, made all things good in the beginning. We know according to Scripture that when it comes to man, He made man upright. But we also know that man sinned. Man sought out many schemes. That is, Adam sinned. And in Adam's sin, because he was our representative... When he sinned and fell, we all fell with him and came under the curse of God's judgment for sin. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. We know that. Romans 5, in Adam all die. That's the curse reiterated there. Now, 
when we when we think in those terms, that doesn't leave any of us less responsible for our sin. That doesn't leave us in less responsible because, well, Adam sinned here. I was born under the curse. Um, most of you all didn't know about the federal headship of Adam whenever you began your first sinning. It, nobody had to come and tell you, hey, you're under the headship of Adam. And you said, hey, well, I guess I'm at liberty to sin. No, it was, it was natural to you. You ran to it. So, so we don't get any, any uh, release from the curse because we're in Adam. But the truth of the matter is, because Adam sinned, we all entered under the curse with him. Now, that's the fall. That's creation. That's fall. Now, from that point in Scripture, God begins to make promises that He would uh, restore, that He would fix things, we could say. Now, for our purposes, again, we're leading up to Acts chapter 2, I want you to think with me along three lines of promise that meet in Acts chapter 2. The promise of Christ, the promise of the gathering in of the nations, and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Three, three promises. They're all connected. They all start at the beginning, somewhere near the beginning, and they all come to a head I believe in Acts chapter 2. So the first is the promise of Christ or the promise of the Christ, the one that we call the Messiah. In, in, in thinking through this outline, all I did was just threw out text that came to my mind. So there's, I just grabbed some text. I said, here's some things that we could put down, but I think you could do the same. The Lord God said to the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity... Between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There we see he, the male offspring of the woman, will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. He will render the death blow to the serpent. Uh, later, as God comes to Abraham, who is of the line of Adam and Eve, Abraham, God comes to him and he says, Genesis, Genesis 22, 17 and 18, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Notice here again, this chord of triumph is struck, possessing the gate of his enemies. And again, it does seem like the, the, the reference here is to a male offspring, now of the line of Abraham. He's the one who's going to have this victory. Okay, moving forward. Numbers 24. We have a man named Balaam. Balaam, it, it's, it's hard to call him a false prophet because he only prophesied what Yahweh told him to say, but he wasn't a believer but he, but he spoke what, what God told him to say. Numbers 24, 19, he says, And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So now it's narrowed even more. The offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David. Again, the court of triumph. He will exercise dominion. He will rule. He will dominate. He will crush. Later God promises... David, King David, speaking of one from David's lineage, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel seven thirteen, And then, 
Speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God said, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. You will call this child God with us. Now, just as an aside, if you read Isaiah 7 and the things leading up to Isaiah 7, you will scratch your head and you will say, how is the promise of the virgin-born incarnate Son of God the answer to the problem in that day? How, and, and, and if you pay attention, all throughout the Old Testament, God comes to Israel in these, these stations, these times of, of dire need, and He comes to them through a prophet, and to, to summarize it, He says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay, the Christ is going to come. Every time. It's, it's always that. Um, because all the promises of God are yes in Him. Anyway, so, so passages like that could be multiplied, but here's the point. From the very beginning, there was a, a promise. It, it, it was unfolded. It was made more and more clear over time. But there was a promise that one, from the seed of the woman, or the offspring of Abraham, the family of Jacob, of the tribe of Judah, would be born of a virgin... He would sit on an everlasting throne. He would exercise dominion, possess the gate of his enemies, and crush the head of the devil. That's, that's sort of one line of the narrative in which Acts chapter 2 is, is a part, or of which. One line of promise, the promise of the Christ. The second line of promise is the promise of the nations. Right along with the promise of Christ and His victory is the promise of people from all nations who would come and serve this triumphant King. It's, it, the, the language is very much, in many places, domination, destruction. Shatter them like a potter's vessel. But then there are other texts you read and it's, it's, it's the opposite. No, people will come freely and worship Him. The magnitude of the work is going to be global, is, is a part of the promise. If we go back to Abraham, God told him in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that, that work through Abraham is going to be global. Jacob, at his death, says to his son Judah, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, or until Shiloh come, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So again, the scepter of kingship. We have the court of, of dominion, of dominance, that will eternally reside within the tribe of Judah. And this kingship is not going to merely be familial or tribal. It's going to be global. The peoples, the nations will render obedience to him. Narrowing the focus again to the family and the lineage of David. We read in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the nations are going to be drawn to this one from Jesse's stump. Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, 
And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, because this is what the Lord has said He will do. The curse of sin which is death, will be swallowed up in the case of all nations. People from every, every nation. The peoples of the, wor- the world. Isaiah 49, 6. Speaking to the eternal Son, the Father says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Again, this salvation through the Messiah will extend to the nations, the ends of the earth. God says in Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called a prayer for all peoples. Again, text could be multiplied, but you get the point. The promise from the beginning was that the work of the Messiah would be a work applied to and made effectual for the nations. It was going to be a global work. John says in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And since the devil's influence has extended to the nations, then we must expect that Christ's victory, Christ's conquering triumph, will also extend to the same nations. That's what's being promised here. When, our, when, when Christ speaks of plundering the strong man's house and taking his goods in Matthew 12... He's referring to the souls of men who were held captive under the dominion of Satan around the world, among the nations. The promise then was that Christ would come and triumph over the devil by delivering people from all nations from his clutches. That's how he conquers the devil. And we know that that was accomplished at the cross. The promise of the Christ, the promise of the gathering in of the nations, and then thirdly, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Once we've considered the promise of this one who will come and perform this work, that at the same time it's going to be a global work, the nations will be um, recipients of this work, then we have to ask, how is it that this one individual accomplishing this one work of salvation in time, relegated to a small place there in the Middle East, how is it that that is going to have an application globally amongst the nations for generations, we now know at thousands of years? How is that to happen? How can the atonement of that one man go forth and have an effectual application among the nations unto this very day? Well, the answer is found in the third line of promise that involves the sending of the Holy Spirit, which was also promised from ancient times, although this time not quite as clearly until later on in history. I'll, I'll begin with Isaiah. Isaiah 32, 14 and 15 says, For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. 
and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Clearly, the, the imagery is life is going to come when the Spirit of God is poured out. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams in on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 39, 26, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Zechariah 4, 6, Then He said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, which we learn from the New Testament is a prophecy concerning the church and its witness in the world, the lampstand shining in the world. How will that happen? Well, through the outpoured Spirit. And we have a text like Joel 2, verse 28, And it, came, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out My Spirit. Here... God through the prophet is speaking in such a way to greatly contrast what will happen in the days to come with what had been the experience of the people of God up until that point. We have to be careful that we don't lose doctrine of God, systematic theology in light of a prophetic texts like that. It's not as though the Holy Spirit had never been given, never never worked, never wasn't in existence. He's he's God. The the, the point that the prophet is making is that this is going to be so far greater in abundance and magnitude and power than anything we've ever seen, that it would be like comparing a sprinkling to a dumping out, a pouring. That's, that's the picture there. So, so from the beginning, again, the promise has been that the Christ would come to redeem people from all nations through the powerful working of His Holy Spirit, or we could at least say the Holy Spirit is going to be a part of this whole plan. I didn't, I didn't really uh, work out for you th that word through the powerful working, but th that's the idea. That's what's going to happen. The, the work of God through one man, then by His Spirit to the nations. And we see that actually beginning to, to take place in the Gospels as Israel rejects Christ in His earthly ministry. We see God turning His attention in, in passages like Matthew 21, 43. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. I believe a lot of what we see in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, is dealing with that reality. That God is God's attention, He's... he's given His attention one last time through Christ to this nation, but He's just turning His, His focus to the nations, just like He promised. Three lines of promise. Christ, the nations, the Holy Spirit. This is how I want you to think of the broadest context, all of Scripture in those three lines. So then, the next closest context would be the book of Acts. Now, when we get to the book of Acts, the Christ, the Messiah, has already come. He's lived his life in the world, uh, completely obedient to the law of God. He's suffered at the hands of men, uh, and yet 
endured in Himself the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He's raised from the dead. All, all of that has, been happen, has, has already taken place. Now, speaking of His own crucifixion, He said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw them into Myself. So he, He's already looking forward to this, this ingathering of the nations. But three days after His crucifixion, He's raised from the dead. What does that mean? He swallows up death, as He promised. For who? In the case of people from all of the nations. He swallowed up that veil of death. Forty days after that, He says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You can see how this is coming together. The promised Messiah promises the Spirit by which His people will be witnesses to the nations. This is the grand scheme of redemptive history. This is what God has been orchestrating. Christ comes and performs the work of our redemption. The Spirit comes to fill His people. His people, that is the church, bears witness to the work of Christ amongst the nations until the end of the age, and the nations are gathered in. That's the, the whole uh, redemptive plan in a nutshell. So He promised His Spirit, this Acts 1, He ascends to the right hand of the Father. He goes bodily. They watched Him go up into the sky to the right hand of His Father. But He tells them, you wait here until that promised Spirit is given, the promise of the Father. Ten days later, the day of Pentecost comes. That brings us to Acts chapter 2. Now we know, because we've, most of us have read Acts 3 onward, that from that point, the, the church is going to be built through the proclamation of the gospel outward beyond Jerusalem. We know that that's going to happen. So... If we wanted to say that the life and death and resurrection are three hinges on which the door of, of redemptive history swings, or just history, if we want to say that that's the, the hinge on which it swings, Acts chapter 2 is the first noticeable movement back towards consummation. History has swung all the way to one side, we could think of it this way, in, in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and over here is consummation. Now all it has to do is come back to the end. The first noticeable movement in this direction is Acts chapter 2. Now as we move closer into Acts chapter 2, if you've still got it there, in, in verses 1 to 13, the promised Holy Spirit comes, fills the disciples of... Christ, they begin to tell of the mighty works of God in languages of men that were from all over the known world that had come to Jerusalem. They were uh, Jews by religion, but not by ethnicity. They were from all over, literally, um, I think it actually uses the word the nations. Um, where it says uh, in verse 5, devout men from every nation under heaven, the known world. The, the disciples proclaim the mighty works of God in languages that those people that had gathered could understand. The Jews who were there, the ethnic Jews, heard it and they said, these men are drunk. What does, what does that tell you? They couldn't understand it. The ethnic Jews couldn't understand it. The people from the nations could understand it. Now, this is far... It's far bigger than, than today's people who say they speak in tongues. And they, they come to this passage and see right there, they're speaking in tongues. It, it, it's, it's way bigger than that. This is 
in the narrative of the whole of the Bible. The apostles spoke in languages not understood by ethnic Jews as a sign of judgment upon that nation. As far as I can tell, every time you see anybody speak in tongues in the book of Acts, it's in the presence of ethnic Jews who don't know what they're saying. The apostles will say, or Luke will say, they spoke in tongues and we all glorified God. They spoke in languages that we didn't know. He didn't, that, that, that was the whole point. The ethnic Jews don't understand. It was a sign of judgment. Again, God is turning His attention to the nations. That's the picture that's happening here. In verses 14 to 36 then, Paul, uh, Peter preaches what we might call the first New Covenant sermon, if that's the way you want to put it. And this sermon, again, is the whole situation is full of redemptive historical overtones. It cannot be understood apart from all of the Bible because it's a part of the story of all of Scripture. And this, he uses Joel 2, 28-32 as his text. In other words, this proves to be that great and awesome day of the Lord prophesied by Joel. Joel said, I'll pour out my spirit. Or God said through Joel. Peter says, that is this. Here, here we are. In the sermon itself, in verse 33, Peter says, "...being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, speaking of the Lord Jesus, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing." Put it another way, it was the, that promised Christ from His throne of triumph who poured out the promised Holy Spirit. And again, what was the purpose? What's the other line? Well, the, the gathering of the nations. There's a, there's a purpose here. To carry the conquest of Christ into the nations. So Peter says in Acts 2, 38 and 39, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Now, in the context of the Bible, that phrase, you, your children, those who are far off, all that God calls Himself, what is, it, what is He saying? The peoples, the nations. That's what's happening here. So what happens? Verse 41, Those who received His Word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, we typically read that as sort of a, an insignificant and yet startling fact. 3,000 people got saved. Whoa, that's a big number. Man, big number. What's next? Remember, this is the same, a part of the same story that began in Genesis and went through Exodus. And as others, others have pointed out, I didn't discover this by myself, the, the 3,000 people that were slaughtered at the base of Mount Sinai, literally pierced through by the unallayed rigor of God's law, are now replaced by 3,000 redeemed souls pierced through the heart by the gospel. There, there is a connection. It's not just, well, hey, man, big number. Wow, wouldn't that be cool? A big number of people? What if it was 2,064? or something? No, it's, it's about 3,000. 
The, the numbers are meant to show you there is a connection here. We're reading the same story. Every line of promise terminates here. The Christ has come. He's triumphed over death and Satan. He's ascended to His throne. He's poured out His Spirit. The Spirit has just converted 3,000 people from all over the known world, i.e. the nations. Now, all of that gets us to our text, verses 42 to 47. And the reason that I've built it up this way is because I don't think the magnitude of what's happening here is usually uh, considered. Usually when we read Acts 2, anybody takes you to Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, the, the applications or the things that people draw out are, well, I think we should meet in houses and not church buildings. Or I don't think we should dress up. They weren't dressing up. I don't think we should have a pulpit. I mean, they didn't stand up on a stage and preach. Stuff like that that's completely irrelevant to what's happening here. This is all of redemptive history coming to a, a, a hinging point and shifting. That's what's happening. It's big. So what we're seeing here is the first immediate response of men to the converting power of the promised Holy Spirit under the new covenant administration of the gospel following the victory of the promised Messiah through His death, resurrection, and ascension. Now I want to pause here. What's taking place is happening in a world where a man has been crucified and come back from the dead. This is a different... Things are different. I stepped out on the, the balcony this morning and looked and as I just happened to see a big truck, kind of like a big dump truck go by, piled high full of underbrush or something. Somebody had probably been clearing. And I thought, we, there are people in this world for whom the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week is completely absent from their entire world. It, as, it is as if, it looks this way at times, the whole world looked at it for a little bit and said, mm, all right, back to business as usual, and has completely moved on except these little pockets of people all over the world who on the first day of every week we get together, we open up this Word, we come to His table, we proclaim His death and resurrection every single week. It never, it never escapes us. It better not ever escape our thinking and our worldview. But this is, this is the start of it. These people were there. This is the first immediate response of men to this proclamation. Now I want you to imagine that all eyes in heaven and on earth are, are watching this unfold. Satan has been cast out and bound. So we can imagine Satan, he's laying out by the curb, tied up by his hands and his feet. He rolls over to see what's going to happen to all my stuff, my goods that are being plundered. The strong man has entered into my house. He's, he's, what's going to happen? Ephesians 3.10 tells us that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That is, all, all the powers of heaven and hell are watching what God is doing in and through His church. 1 Corinthians 11 says the angels watch as we gather for worship. They're watching. So you can imagine, all of creation is watching to see what will these 3,000 people do? What's going to happen? 
All creation waits at bay on the edge of its seat. Wait and see. What's going to characterize these people? The, the ascended Christ has just poured out His Spirit upon them. Is it going to affect them at all? Will their lives be any different? What marks this new people? What does it look like when the kingdom of heaven is taken from rebels and given to a people producing its fruits? What are its fruits? Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Five things from this verse that I want you to see. Number one, they, un- they were united in their devotions. Upholding everything that follows, it says that they, that is all of them together collectively, devoted themselves, or you might have continued steadfastly. The idea is that they gave themselves earnestly to persist in several things together. They if you can imagine what it, what it takes for you to devote yourself. They, they came to a, a, a settled resolution in their hearts, each, 3, 000, each one of them 3,000 separately. We, I'm resolving at this point now because of what has just happened, I'm resolving to give myself to certain things. And he looks around and 299 or 2,999 other people are all saying, yeah, me too. They all devote themselves. This was not like Black Friday shopping where everybody shows up and they're all at the store together and they're waiting, the door's open and everybody runs in to get their stuff, but then they all scurry back to their houses. We got our stuff and we leave. This, is, this wasn't like that. The change brought about by the Holy Spirit was singular. In them all, it, it turned them all in the same direction. All these people came to Jerusalem to leave. Most of them, I don't think, left. At least for a while, they didn't leave. I think a lot of the uh, sharing of goods and taking care of one another, meeting, meeting as any had need, I think a lot of that was because people showed up to Jerusalem to leave, and they didn't leave. Hey, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to eat? I didn't, I didn't bring enough money to stay this long. You got, you got some clean clothes I can wear? They had to take care of each other. They were united in their devotions. They were devoted to an entirely new way of life. Secondly, they were united in their reception of teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Or they were united under the same doctrine. They all agreed that this this teaching, what would be given by the apostles, was theirs to hear, to imbibe, to believe, to conduct themselves, to walk by. They agreed that. They all understood their need for instruction and teaching from God. And this is how... People come to be of the same mind and of the same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1.10. This is how it happens. The teaching. Singular teaching goes out. They all come together and sit under the same teaching. They're all hearing the same things. Same text, same doctrine, same application. Same text, same doctrine, same application. That's how people come together. Now we in our age are blessed with things like Sermon Audio and YouTube and you can go down a rabbit hole of that and you can take months studying a single uh, scriptural theme or doctrine all by yourself and be, be rooted and convinced and established and you're just flourishing there and come into the assembly and nobody else has any idea what you're talking about. Now that might be helpful for you, but that's not helping the unity of the church. I'm not saying that's good or bad, right or wrong. I'm just saying 
That's not how it was then. Peter didn't pass out little New Testaments as they got baptized. Here's your, your New Testament or your, your college student, devotional Bible, whatever. He wasn't doing that. They didn't have that. They just came and sat. You teach us. And that united them. That was a thread just pulling them together. Hearing the same teaching from the same teachers at the same time binds the body together. Thirdly, they were united in their fellowship together. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. This was uh, the specific koinonia, that's the word, koinonia, that characterizes the Christians, the saints. One commentary described it this way, the fellowship of the church, that common life of close brotherhood in which all that they did was done in common. There seemed to be but one heart and one mind amongst them all. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Remember this word, koinonia, is used in 1 Corinthians 10 with regard to the Lord's Supper. We participate in the body and blood of Christ. We come to it and we receive personal benefits we participate. That's the word here. They devoted themselves to the fellowship or the participation in and with one another where benefits were, were being uh, disseminated between them, both spiritual and physical. And, and I've heard some far smarter than me who've actually suggested that when it says the fellowship, it's talking about specifically financial support. Either way, they devoted themselves to that, this fellowship. Number four, they broke bread together. They divided or they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, a reference to the Lord's Supper, the closest of all fellowship unions. Now, what does it say about this people that, that they devoted themselves to the Lord's Supper? It says that when they came together, the central unifying element among them was their faith in devotion to and love for Jesus Christ, His body, His blood. They recognized these people who were cut to the heart. They knew. Peter had told them, you crucified Him. And now immediately they're coming regularly and saying, I, I want to participate in that body and blood and its benefits for me that joined them together. And number five, they prayed together. They devoted themselves to the Prayers, stated seasons of prayer, specific, predetermined times to meet together and just pray. They devoted themselves to that. They said, I'm, I'm here for that. What do you got? Well, we got doctrine, we got fellowship, we got Lord's Supper, we got prayer. I'm here for that. I'll take some of that. That's what they said. They all devoted themselves to it. Verse 44. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. That word together is specifically used of church unity. It means literally one place, one time. They were all together in the same place at the same time. Together. 45, distributing the proceeds of their things as any had need. They held their earthly possessions loosely in light of the reality that now they have new brothers and sisters who may have need. They didn't immediately sell all of their stuff but they would sell what needed to be sold to give the money to distribute as there were needs. Compared to the unity of the saints and their love for one another, earthly belongings were of little value. 
They were so joined together that the struggles of one was considered to be the struggle of all. Your struggle is my struggle. Your joy is my joy. Your tears are my tears. They were joined together this way. Yeah, this is all my stuff. You need it? You need some of it? You need me to sell it and give you some money? What is it? What, what, what do you need? Is there any need? That's how they thought. Because they were devoted to one another. They loved one another. They took, or they thought of and took personal interest in the needs of the others, the other people. Verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together. That phrase, day by day, shows us this was an ongoing lifestyle. These people were changed in a moment on the day of Pentecost. Their whole lifestyle was different. Now, again, I know that we can tend to hear things like this and drift towards that uh, what I've been trying to avoid, that kumbaya-ism type of thinking. Oh, we all just need to be more nicer to each other. And Here you wear my coat, let me wear yours, and stuff like that. I don't want any of this to overshadow the clear, obvious, internal work of the Spirit of God who's just brought 3,000 people from death to life by His regenerating power. These people were born again. They had been created anew. The point I'm making is, because of that, the first thing we see is all of this. This is what it issues forth in. The natural overflow was unity with one another. This wasn't like the soup kitchen of saving power. Soup kitchen, right? This, is, this one over here is open on Tuesdays. That one's open on Thursdays. Down there, that one's open on Saturday. So it's Tuesday. You come. Hey, there's you again. You just go through the line, get your soup, talk for a second. Well, that was good. Thank y'all. Leave. Where will you see those people again? Thursday at the other soup kitchen. You come and get it. Thank, that was, thank you, that was good. And you leave. This wasn't that. They didn't just come and get and say, well, we appreciate all the good things, so we're gonna, I'm going to have to run on now. I've got other things to do. This wasn't that. They were united. They were drawn together. They were drawn together by what they believed and what they did because what they believed was the bedrock for how they lived. What they believed changed how they lived. Since they all came together under common belief, it issued forth in common practice. Now, I'm not arguing for any type of communism or that we got to build walls and all live in the same house. This is not, it's not going to look like this in our present setting, our present culture. If it did, it wouldn't be bad. Cults, are bad because they believe wrong, not because they all hang out together. But I'm not saying that it's going to look exactly the same. I just want you to see their mindset. They were drawn together. This first church in Jerusalem, we could call it Jerusalem Reformed Baptist Church, was not instantly a church at its final stage of maturity. They had to devote themselves to teaching so that they could learn and be trained and be taught and grow doctrinally. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are killed. That was, that was a lesson for everybody. In chapter 6, there's a problem that needs to be addressed with the distribution of, of food to the widows. And it has to be addressed. They have to learn how to handle these things. But the amazing thing is when you read that, they all understood these areas of growth are to be dealt with as a church. Word comes to the apostles. These widows are not receiving their distribution. Okay, call everybody together. All right, now that we're all together, 
Here's the problem. Now you all pick some men. You've got some men? Okay, men, do this work. We're going to keep doing this work and go back to what you were doing. They understood this is our problem. They were united in the way that they handled these things. There was a, there was a pursuit of harmony as they were growing together. Now think with me. Putting, putting that together with what we saw in John 17. Again, we're building a, a cumulative case. So now we have two texts. Imagine you were, you were just born again, you were just saved, or you just came into possession of a Bible about a month ago, two months ago, and you're reading through the Bible for the first time. And let's say you decide this afternoon, I'm going to spend all Sunday afternoon, I'm just going to pick up where I left off reading this morning, I'm going to read all Sunday afternoon before I come back for the evening service. You left off this morning at John... Finish John chapter 12. So you go home this afternoon, you pick up John 13, you begin to read. Christ washes His disciples' feet. He says, you, you do what I've done. Christ tells His disciples, you are to love one another even as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You read all the promises of the work of the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse. Then you move into Christ's prayer in John 17. You get to hear Him praying for His disciples. You see him betrayed, arrested, disciples scatter. Peter denies that he even knows him. At the cross, John is the only disciple that was there that we know of. Only John. Then you get to the book of Acts. Christ meets with his disciples, you know, Peter and John, and them on the, on the beach. You get to the book of Acts. Christ has been raised from the dead. He ascends into the heavens. You get to Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, the Spirit falls, these 3,000 people are saved from all over the known world. You see these 3,000 people devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, they're selling their possessions for the sake of their new brothers and sisters. Maybe you even drink a cup of coffee, you get a little, little spurt of energy there. You, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep reading. You read on to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And great power, or with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, I don't think that those are separate things. I don't think that those are distinct. Like, it just, it just so happened they were all getting along. And it just so happened great grace and great power was coming from... I don't, I don't think those are separate. Um, I, I tend to think Psalm 133 is kind of getting at that. Uh, the outpoured spirit and the unity of, of the brethren. But you, you read that. Now, what if I stopped you right there and I said, now please... Tell me what primary characteristic characterized those saints, those first saints in Jerusalem? What would you say? Or, or if I asked you, what do you think the head of the church had in mind when he was praying for his people there in John 17? Now, I, I think that there's more than one answer, but I think amongst the answers that I would hear, I think you would say, well, it seems like obtaining and maintaining unity was to be among the primary and consistent labors of the church. Maybe you wouldn't use those words, but I think if you, if you don't see that, I think you've missed a, a major point of what's being conveyed. 
Unity was a priority for the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a priority for the saints. It was an immediate fruit of the converting power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we tend to think otherwise. We say, well, surely things like upholding the truth of the gospel, uh, the, upholding the pure worship of God in the church, discipleship and evangelism, surely those things would take preeminence over something like unity. But I would argue that there would be no buttress of the truth. There would be no pure worship. There would be no discipleship and evangelism apart from the unity in the local church. That's like saying, I think that having proper circulation to my feet is more important right now than getting the arteries in my heart unclogged. You can't, that didn't work that way. You've got to start with the heart. You start with the source. Unclog it and it will flow. So also, those things that we see as absolute essential priorities of the local church They are just that. They are priorities, all of them, of the local church that's assuming that there is a body that's been drawn together, an assembly of unified, gathered saints. And it can't happen properly apart from that. Any congregation that's not pursuing doctrinal and practical harmony cannot expect to do any of these other things. Now, you might have a few people here or there in a church doing doing certain things, but that's not that's far that's falls far short of what Christ was praying for. I believe you just have a a church that's doctrinally spattered, practically worldly, and then you say, "Yeah, but those two guys over there they they preach in the open air all the time." I would say, "Well, that's wonderful, but the church is the church is not healthy. This is supposed to be a church endeavor, the church." So again, I say, obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. It's not an option if we desire to be within the bounds of God's prescribed will. It's not the only thing that we think about, care about, talk about, but it is among our priorities. It should be at the top of our priorities, and it has to stay at the top of our priorities because our tendency is to drift away from it. Now, two points of application, just just to stir your thought. Really, the the fullness of the application of all of this will be when we get to the obtaining and maintaining part. That'll be the application. How do we get it and how do we keep it? But but for now, I do want to leave you with just some thoughts just for examination. The first would be this. If those rulers and powers in heavenly places were watching you or watching us, would they conclude that we had come under the same power that was poured out in Acts chapter 2? Would there be any resemblance? Would they say, it looks like those people got the same thing as those people? Now again, I'm not saying it. it's going to look exactly the same because of the redemptive historical context. There, there may not be speaking in tongues. There may not be 3,000 souls. But at least on whatever scale would be applicable, would there be any resemblance? Secondly, a little more personal how much of our unity... I've had people ask me outside of this church, um, man, what's going on in your church that you're doing all that? I said, nothing. I, don't, I, I think we're actually pretty unified across the board for the most part. Um, and I've, I've even said, I feel like if you wait till there's a bunch of disunity to start preaching about it, you, you're already too late. That's why I'm doing it. But we have to examine ourselves. We might be thinking, I mean, I think, there's, I think we're, we're together here. But... 
how much of our unity revolves around our having already gotten together rather than being a trait which brings us together. Now let me explain that. For a lot of people, the doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers, the people of God, the worship, the gathering, that's not in their mind all week. It never enters into their mind. If it does, it's only briefly. If it does more than briefly or, or multiple times, it's only because one of those people reached out or they got a ding on their phone, they got a message. But, but beyond that, it, the, the whole concept of the congregation, the church, is really out of their mind. Now, when Sunday comes, you get here, well, you make the best of it and you try to enjoy it. I'm here. Here, here are the people that I'm with. You come up to the front door like this. <gasps> Hey, how is everybody? It's so good to see you. And then you walk back out. Oh, whew. There I did it. I, I made the best of it. Right? You, the unity that we feel is just because we, we all made it here. How much of our unity is the fact that we just happen to be gathered here rather than how much of it is actually drawing us together? Most of us don't experience much of anything different if we have a dinner with extended family members. I got to go. They invited me. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to, when I walk in, I'll put a smile on my face. I promise, honey. I'll put a smile on my face. I'll be nice. I'll make the best of it. And then I'll move on. And that's how we enjoy it. And, and if you said, if somebody asked you, do you get along with your extended family? And say, oh, yeah, yeah, get along with them. See them twice a year. When I'm with them, I'm, I can endure it. We get along great. That's not, that's not unity, right? The fact that you're together often requires you to attempt to make the best of it. Another thought that came into my mind was the break room at work. You know, I'll take break together. Well, here we are. We're not really friends anywhere else, but we're here, so we might as well try to get along. But that's not unity. That's not what we're after. Do you think that's what Christ was praying for? What Christ wanted for His bride? Is that what we see in the book of Acts? I don't think it is. These people were utterly reoriented their whole lives together around the things of God. It wasn't just, I just love these people. They're so sweet. No, it was around the things of God, but these people are the people of God, so being drawn to Him, I'm drawn to them. We've had a lot of sickness, health issues, lots of absences here that we're, we, we haven't been able to avoid. And issues like that, tend to have the effect of turning us utterly inward, at least in the moment. I, you, you just think, I have got to get over this. i got to get myself out. You wake up in the morning, your first thought is, how do I feel? You're, you're, you're sensing your body. How do I feel? You go to bed at night, how do I feel? People around you are asking, how do you feel? Utterly inward. Now, I hope that it, when times like those come and thoughts like or I hope that thoughts like this will pass through your head. Boy, I miss my church. I hope that when it comes down to it and you need to stay home, I hope that that's actually a hard reality to swallow. I hope that, that, that it settles down in your gut. It's not supposed to be like this. How do we know that? Because glory will erase all of that. And things that glory has to erase should not sit well with us. So I hope that, that it, it, it's not an easy thing. You know, like when you're a kid and your mom asks you if you're too sick to go to school or whatever. 
and you, you, get the, you get the green light to stay home. You think, whew, I'm, you immediately start feeling better. Like all of a sudden, you're, yeah. you're healthy. I can, I can play outside. I can ride my bike, all these things. Hopefully, you don't feel that whenever you realize, I'm not going to be able to worship with the saints today. I hope that there's not something in you that says, it's actually going to be a lot easier. A little, I get to relax. Stay in my pajamas, lay in the bed, whatever. I hope that that's not there. And if you, if you sense it, which we've all sensed it, that you fight against it. You say, that's not how I should be. Amen. In glory, we will be together forever, beholding the face of our conquering King. And the Apostle Paul describes the saints as those who love His appearing. And hopefully, you, you connect those things. I... Love His appearing and I love His people and I want to be with His people. And the idea of being around the people of God for eternity, hopefully that is attractive to us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. At the Lord's Supper, we we come to contemplate and to remember again the the death of Jesus on the cross for us. The bread obviously being central. At the Passover, it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. So as we break the bread together, the breaking of bread, we break the bread as a reminder of Christ's body broken for us, And in its being broken, the accomplishment of the work, knowing that all things had been fulfilled, it is finished. It's done. The work is completed. On the cross, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the eternal Word of God in flesh, suffered at the hands of men, but beyond that... He was enduring in His own body the penalty due to the sins of His people. You see, we are sinners. Our sins deserve to be punished because God's holy, He's righteous. He must punish our sins. He must punish our sins. On the cross, Jesus was punished For what? For our sins. He took our iniquity onto Himself and suffered for our sins. At the Lord's Supper, that's what we remember. Now what does that mean for our sins? What does that mean for our standing with God? God looks upon us as if we had no sins. He treats us as if we were the holy Jesus because He treated the holy Jesus as if He were a vile criminal 
like me and like you. We don't ever forget it. So as the elements are passed, I want you to contemplate that. What are your sins? Name as many as you can. He took them into His body. He bore them in His own body on the tree that we might live to God. Live for Him. So meditate upon that. Contemplate on that. Bring, bring sins to Him. Confess once again any, any known sins. Revel in the cross and then we'll come to the Lord's table together as a church.